is the Resilient Disciples Podcast, powered by Awana. I'm Ross Cochran. Thank you for listening. We are back for the start of season three. Kind of, at least. We'll pop up a few times between now and August 5th when we'll be back with weekly episodes. But I had to come to you today because today you'll hear from Dr. George Barna, as well as Awana President and Chief Strategy Officer Matt Markins. George Barna has filled executive roles in politics, marketing, advertising, media development, research, and ministry. He founded the Barna Research Group in 1984, now known as the Barna Group, and helped it become a leading marketing research firm focused on the intersection of faith and culture before he sold it in 2009. We start the conversation with Dr. Barna sharing what stands out to him about this current generation of kids, what makes them unique, and how can we best disciple them given the unique challenges that they face. Thanks for listening to the Resilient Disciples Podcast. Well, I think one of the biggest issues has to do with worldview. They're growing up in a nation and in households where it's extremely unlikely that anybody in the household has a biblical worldview. And when you take that out of the equation, what that essentially means is that everything is up for grabs. There are no absolutes of any type. And therefore, every decision they make is in the minds of of the parenting generation as well as the peer generation of today's kids. Everything is defensible. There are no rights and wrongs. And when you start from that place in life, it's very difficult to ever get to a place where you can accept, for instance, the Bible Mm -hmm. as truth, where you would, for instance, accept the principles and commands and example of Jesus Christ as something that ought to be the model for your life, where, for instance, you might talk about God as being not only the creator, but the center of everyone's life. Those concepts make no sense to a world in which there are no absolutes, there are no documents that should give you a firm foundation on which to build. Mm. There are no kinds of restrictions, limitations, boundaries that a person needs to recognize if it doesn't feel right, because everything is driven by emotion. Wow. I wanted to start there because I think what that speaks to is a tension that most of our listeners feel, but you, like you do in so much of your work, were able to put words to it that I think are really helpful for folks. Because I think when people have that person, that child who's part of their ministry that they can't quite connect with, and it just feels like they're in two different realities, what you're saying is essentially that they are. And to start from that place when you're trying to work with them, I think is such so crucial. I'd like to go back to the last thing you said there, uh, George, on uh, kind of the secular creed. Like, what what are what is the framework that today's child is living in? You mentioned if it doesn't feel good, right? Like that's almost like the sin in, to a secular world. What are the other things that that you would describe? Kind of make up if if there's a creed for the secular culture or the post Christian culture, what would be those key uh, pieces of the framework? You know, one of them has to do with the idea of success. What is success? Of course, to someone who loves Christ, wants to be biblical in how they live, 
successes consist in obedience to God. In our culture, success is feeling good about yourself, having the freedom to do whatever you want to do, however you want to do it, whenever you want to do it. Uh, it, it, it has to do with, you know, your, your sense of self and being able to play that out however you wish. Um, the, the context in which kids are growing up in our culture is one where a Christian would look at history as the unfolding of God's plan to fulfill his purposes. But in our culture, we look at history as a human narrative that can always be edited because it's imperfect. Hmm. Uh, you know, in our culture, people look at themselves as the center of their reality. A biblical Christian would look at God as the center of reality. We are here simply to honor and relate to him. When you think about something like life purpose, uh, you know, in a Christian context, our purpose is to know, love, and serve God with all our heart, mind, and soul. But in our cultural context, our purpose is to experience happiness, enjoyment, and success. In a Christian context, we think about truth as something that emanates from the very character of God and that he has defined truth for us in his word. In our culture, however, we believe that there is no such thing as absolute moral truth. The individual is the only one who can identify truth for him or herself. It changes according to the circumstances, and nobody can question your perception of truth. They have to accept it because it's your truth. <laughs> and, you know, they're yeah. going to have their truth, but I you can't challenge their truth because it's their truth. So, you know, you start to put all this together and it really is two different universes and trying to figure out how do we bridge that? You know, we could even throw salvation into that mix. You know, what happens after you die? And we know that only 2% of Americans believe that they're going to go to hell. Uh, you know, so 98% believe that there's going to be some kind of existence after they die here on earth and yet only 30% believe that they're going to go to heaven only because they've confessed their sins and have accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. So that means about two out of three Americans believe that they're going to have some kind of a positive existence after this life is done that's going to have nothing to do with God. Wow. So it's, it's a really interesting time to be alive. So the way you describe that there, you know, with... Uh, what's what's helping to contribute toward the framework of the culture that we're swimming in with personal happiness and how I experience my own truth, you be you. A lot of this is driven by emotion. Like the, as we've studied this, uh, it looks like what we're what we're understanding is at the center of all of that is this idea of personal autonomy or or hyper individualization that I get to experience the world uh, with me at the center. Um, and I, I think you described that in a way it's very consistent with uh, what we see and what we're interpreting as well. But I want to go back to uh, so, some of your work in two, that was published in 2004, 2005, uh, because it helped contribute significantly to the conversation that the children's ministry and child discipleship community is even doing today. I think some of your work was a catalyst and a spark to what we call the modern day family ministry movement, which I would say is connected to the larger discipleship or disciple making movement. 
Um, so talk, can you talk to us about what, what led up to the publishing of your work, transforming children to spiritual champion? Why, why did you uh, go into that space? Yeah, it's, it's a little embarrassing actually to talk about because at that point in time, what our company was doing was trying to help church leaders to understand the culture, not to accommodate it, but to be able to challenge it biblically and to bring new ways of thinking to people who are moving into the kind of mindsets that we've just been talking about. And, and so we had been doing seminars for probably a decade at that point. And the, the, the process was we would spend two or three years doing research. I'd go out on the road with my family for about 18 months. We do seminars in between 100 to 200 cities across the country invite pastors from all the churches within a hundred mile radius of where we were. And then we'd spend the day downloading information and ideas and strategies for better ministry. Well, having done that for a decade, I mean, we'd blown through all the usual topics, uh, you know, discipleship, worship, evangelism, service, uh, building community, you know, it, you just talk about all the stuff. I mean, we'd already been through it. And so we were sitting in our office one day trying to figure out, okay, what are we going to do in our next seminar series? And we identified three different topics, and we're sitting around, batting around topics, and one of the women in the room said, hey, you know, we've never done anything on ministry to children. And I looked at her, and I laughed, and I said, well, no, we haven't. Why would we? Oh, wow. And, uh, you know, she was kind of taken aback, and everybody in the room looked at me and said, hmm, yeah, why would we? And, uh, <laughs> you know, so we went about batting around more topics, and, and, and I don't know, 10, 15, 20 minutes later, I got back to her and said, wait, you know, that thing that you said about children, that's bugging me. I mean, you know, we've talked about teenagers, we've talked about young adults, we've talked about college students, we've, we've done all these other people groups, you know, Blacks, Asians, Hispanics, etc. We've done research on all that. Why haven't we looked at children? Maybe there's something there. I don't know. You know, I've never really even thought about it. Typical Christian, right? Yeah. So um, we went out, we did the research, and it blew my mind because I learned so much about the importance of ministering to children. I have to say it's one of the two or three things I've done over the last 40 plus years that have completely revolutionized the way that I think about ministry and the way that I think about impact on people's lives. And so we went out and that was one of the sessions that we did. And then the book that you alluded to, Transforming Children into Spiritual Champions, came out of that research and then the year and a half that we spent on the road interacting with pastors. And I have to say, when we did that uh, that road tour, that road trip, uh, one of the things that fascinated me was uh, we actually had to switch around the order of the topics because we went into it in the early cities where we were doing that tour, me thinking, we're going to leave this for last because this is the most important thing, you know, because now my mind has been completely changed <laughs> about the importance of children's ministry. And what we found was that in the early markets where we had it forth because we thought, here's the big aha moment most of the pastors left before we got to that, that uh, oh, session no, no. Be because they had the same mindset I had before I did the research, which is what do I care about children? Ministry is about adults, wow. you know, filling the church with adults is success. 
And that's still the mentality in America today. But, you know, so we changed around the order of the sessions. We actually put it right before lunch. You know, <laughs> I didn't want to lose them after lunch. I didn't want to lose them at the end of the day. I figured, yeah. okay, really, maybe the highlight session is session two. You know, we'll do session one on trends or whatever. And then we'll do number two. We'll talk about children's ministry. And I had so many pastors who were so upset that came up to me and said, why are you wasting my time? Do you oh, know wow. how I am? And, and I said, why are you wasting my time with this question? Are you listening to what I'm talking about here? This is the single most important thing you can take out of this day. So I made a lot of enemies on that tour. <laughs> oh, well, but to me, it was worth it. I mean, you got to shake them. You got to change. Yeah. Well, you may have made some enemies, but I, I know one demographic where you gained a lot of friends uh, and you empowered. And I, I can't be the only person to have shared this with you, but I've spent 20 years of my nonprofit ministry career, not in the church, but, but outside the church, parachurch. And you gave voice to those who work with children in a big and powerful way. There was a collective sigh uh, when that book published. And uh, when we, I was a part of launching D6, you were actually one of our first communicators. And we didn't even have our own book. We took your book out on the road <laughs> and we helped uh, really bring that community uh, together. So thank you for that work. Uh, it's just been really empowering to those who advocate for child discipleship. Well, I mean, that, that was an honor for me to do that. You know, looking back over the course of all, all the years that I've been able to do research and, you know, communicate things about our culture and the church to people, that certainly has to be one of the highlights for me has been having the privilege to do that and to know that there were a lot of people that, you know, read that or heard that. And, and it, it was a wake up call for a lot of people. And for others, it was, as you were saying, an empowering moment where it's like, praise the Lord. I'm not alone in thinking that children really matter and we really need to invest heavily in them. Yeah. You know, and to this day, I, I only talk about a few things when I go out now, not interested in covering the waterfront anymore. I mean, I want to spend my last years finishing well. And as I try to figure out what does that mean? Well, it's predominantly talking to people about worldview. And in the course of that, they have to understand that a person's worldview develops between 15 to 18 months of age and 13 years of age. So if you want to do the single most important thing you can do in ministry, and that's to help a person develop a biblical worldview, the window of time we have when we can do that and do it effectively is relatively small. We got a decade or so during which we can do it. And we can't wait until they become teenagers. We can't wait till they're in college. Can't wait till they're adults. We've got to do it when they're young because most Americans will die with the worldview that they developed prior to the age of 13. It's very unusual for an adult to substantially change anything within their worldview. It happens. But usually it only happens when there's a dramatic encounter with the Holy Spirit and their entire life is rearranged by God at that moment in time. And yes, that does happen. God can do it anytime he wants. He doesn't need my permission. You know, but the, but the reality is that doesn't happen very often. Usually it's with children. And so that it's still one of the most significant things that I get to talk about and write about. And in fact, uh, you know, I work at Arizona Christian University right now, and it's a worldview, biblical worldview university. And one of our upcoming projects later this year is to 
kind of renew that research that I originally did with the Transforming Children to Spiritual Champions book to update it and find out, okay, what, what do we need to learn about today's children, the context of their households, their families, their schools, all of that, so that if we need to change strategies, we need to be thinking very intentionally and clearly about what do we do going forward, we'll, we'll have that research. Well, you know, every, just about every thriving local faith community, local church has a children's ministry or something geared toward reaching and discipling children. Having said that, even though it's, it's a priority to many churches, when you look around the church staff table and you kind of ask the question, who has the least amount of influence and leverage, it's often the person who's leading the children's ministry. So to have a resource and data that's compelling like that and packaged in the way it's packaged has been huge help to the child discipleship community. Thanks for listening. We'll be right back. Calling all moms. This one is for you. Join us September 9th through the 11th in Nashville for MomCon. And when I say join us, I mean us. Awana will have a booth at this conference and we would love to see you there. MomCon is the conference you need to reignite your faith, passion, and love of all things motherhood. Come as you are and leave a little closer to who you want to become. Get your tickets now at mops.org slash momcon. That's www.mops.org slash m-o-n-c-o-n. I love hearing your passion. I also love the fact that you yourself had a moment that I think a lot of people have when we read your research where you go, oh my gosh, this is so important and really convicting. The fact that you experience that yourself is amusing to me. Um, but I want to bring this into this current moment of child discipleship. You know, one of the things that we have really tried to focus the conversation on is about not only the importance of child discipleship, but how child discipleship works. The churches that are doing child discipleship well, how is that shaping their communities, shaping the long-term health of that church when they are doing this well compared to churches that are still having too many of those uh, moments like those pastors had with you when you first brought up this research? Well, uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of reluctant to answer that before doing our, our upcoming research. <laughs> sure. you know, I don't want to say something now that's based on, you know, slightly dated uh, data and then later this year, I have to come back and say, oh, gee, I got that wrong. Things have changed more than I thought. Sure. Uh, but I, I will say that, I mean, what's very clear with the research we've been doing is that with our young people, with children, if we are not intentionally focused on helping them to develop a biblical worldview, the world is very happy to shift their minds and hearts and lives toward other kinds of worldviews. And it's going to be very hard to dislodge those. So, yeah. for instance, we look at the national data among what I think a lot of people are calling Gen Z, who are, you know, our, our current middle school, high school uh, uh, aged people. And what we're finding is that less than 1% of that generation has a biblical worldview. Basically, what that's leading us to is the extinction of biblical Christianity in America. 
Wow. And so if I had to say, you know, if we were doing a trends program here and, you know, they would, they would say, well, what's the, the, the biggest, scariest, most influential trend that you could think of? I would say it's that Christianity in America is on the edge of extinction. It's not to say that we won't have a lot of churches, Christian churches around. We won't still have Christian publishing houses. We'll have all the institutional stuff. But in terms of people living a vibrant Christian life that's based on God's principles from the scriptures, uh, yeah, that's what we're going to be lacking. And so right now in America, thanks to the older generations, we do still have enough of a remnant that remains. People who are completely sold out to God would do whatever he calls them to do for whatever vision he gives to them. I mean, we have enough of those left that, yes, we, we can see this nation turn around. But we are rapidly approaching a time where that's not going to be the case. I know God can do anything at any time. I'm not doubting that. I'm not challenging that. But I'm just saying when we look at what we've got to work with in terms of resources as the true church of God in America today, we're losing it. And so if we don't start building into children now in the same way that leaders throughout history have understood, I mean, you, you look at Marx, you look at Lenin, you look at Mao Zedong, you look at, uh, you know, a bunch of other uh, social and political leaders who said, you give me a child until the age of seven, and after that, they're mine. They recognize the yeah. importance of getting to children early. And sadly, the, the church in America has not been doing that. So, you know, I, 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 whenever I speak, I try to remind if it's a group of pastors, the single most important thing you can do is invest most of your ministry resources in ministering to children. Don't waste it on adults. If you're going to put something into adults, put it only into the parents or grandparents so that they can actually minister to the children. Your ministry has to be child centric because that's where you're going to see impact. George, wow. uh, just for our listeners, say that stat about Gen Z one more time. Less than less than one percent of them have a biblical worldview, and when I talk about biblical worldview, we're talking about uh, both beliefs and behavior because you do what you believe, and so we measure both. And the idea here is that a worldview is your your primary decision making tool. Every decision you make flows through that mental, emotional, and spiritual filter that is your worldview. And so as you're making choices, it's based on your worldview. What we know is that less than 1% of Gen Z has a worldview that's based on biblical principles. Most of their worldview is drawn from a series of other worldviews. We just put out a report where we're looking at, we know only 6% of all American adults have a biblical worldview. What do the other 94% have? And what we discovered is that 88% of them, their dominant worldview is what we call syncretism, which means that they don't really have a dominant worldview. What they're doing is they're just pulling out ideas from all these other worldviews, Marxism, postmodernism, existentialism, secular humanism, Eastern mysticism, I mean, whatever's out there that they like, something yeah. that they think is going to make them feel good, something that's going to be comfortable, something that will make things more convenient, something that seems most popular at the moment. And so they're just taking all that and throwing that together, and that becomes the 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 core of their decision-making filter, their worldview. So with our younger generation, I mean, we, 
unless there's a dramatic move of God in the near future, we've, I hate to say it, but we've lost them. Can we get them back? It's possible. Yes, the Holy Spirit can do anything. But, you know, just as a sociologist, I look at the numbers, I look at the averages, and I'm saying, typically, that doesn't happen. And certainly in America, it hasn't happened in a long time. So why don't we be strategic? Let's start focusing on today's children so that, yes, we can win them to the Lord and his principles, and they, in turn, will do that with their children. That's how the process should work, you know, where parents have the biblical responsibility to be doing that with their kids. The local church ought to be uh, equipping and supporting parents in that process. But, uh, man, we got to turn it around real quickly, or, you know, the point I was making, Christian, going to be America. So Ross, I'm thinking if I'm, if I'm a children's ministry leader or a pastor and I hear that, right. The first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to take the afternoon off. I'm going to take the afternoon off (laughs) and I'm going to go, I'm going to go sit in that and I'm going to pray and I'm going to think and knowing how my mind works, I'm going to go to a whiteboard. But as I think about where this information, where our culture is going, where the church is going, I think we need to be asking questions. If this is the case, right? If we're swimming in a culture of personal autonomy and you be you and you be happy. And if this is what's happening in terms of the results that are yielding in terms of biblical worldview, I'm going to be asking questions around, well, what is it? What is it that most likely produces long-term resilient faith in the life of children? And uh, for for our listeners who haven't heard this, uh, Awana is releasing in, 2022 in partnership with the Barna Group, the organization in Georgia's namesake, uh, we're releasing an assessment for churches to measure fruitfulness and effectiveness in the areas of belonging, highly relational ministry, deeply scriptural ministry that builds a biblical Christian worldview, and thirdly, becoming. That's it. That's how I experience my faith and how loving, caring adults walk alongside of me. So if, if you're asking that question after hearing that from George and saying, what are we going to do to most likely have more fruitful ministry to children, be on the lookout for that assessment that's coming from the Barna Group in Awana. Yes, for sure. Thank you, Matt. I think I should probably point out that I sold the Barna Group about 12 years ago. So unfortunately, I'm not part of that process, but I'm glad to hear that it's happening. I think it's so obvious to anyone who's listening to your passion and how laser focused and urgent this message is. But my concern is, and this might just even be my own personality type, but my concern is when you see data like that, when I see data like that, I... I can kind of quickly take the afternoon off and then not go back to work the next day and become overwhelmed. So you, as the guy who was the leader in crafting so much of this kind of structure and messaging that speaks to the urgency of this moment, what gives you hope about the future of the church? Because uh, how do you not become cynical and just decide that, you know, it's all over for us? Because I, I think that the concerns and the way that you work through that are going to resonate with a lot of folks on the ground who are listening to this in the context of their own communities. Well, I'm a human being. So, yeah, I mean, I do get discouraged. Uh, you know, I'll see this stuff. I'll say, oh, no, it's gotten worse. <laughs> How could that be? I thought we were at the low point already. So, yeah, I mean, I, I go through that. But then, you know, a, a couple of things occur to me, one of which is, well, but I think I'm part of the remnant. And so I can't really give up. God put me here for such a time as this. I know what he's called me to do. It's not done yet. So, 
yeah, I mean, I got to keep playing the game. And the other thing that always comes back to me is that scripture that talks about, you know, I'm going to have to answer to God for all the things that I did in my life. So what am I going to say? Yeah, I really believe in you. I know you're all powerful. I know you can do anything at any time. Uh, but I really didn't think you could turn this around. So I kind of gave up. You know, that, that's a hard argument to make. So, you know, I, I'm not responsible for the results. I recognize that. I'm responsible to be obedient. I'm responsible to be committed. I'm responsible to be responsible. So, yeah. you know, those are the kinds of things that, that I keep coming back to. And actually the joy of being able to do what God made me to do. Although some of the outcomes are really distressing for me personally, the reality is, but I love doing what I get to do. Yeah. I mean, he really found the niche for me. This is what he made me for. I get that. And I'm so thankful for that. So, I mean, that's kind of what keeps me going. And I would hope that the people who are ministering to kids have that same mentality of, oh man, you know, these little snotty nosed brats, they're, they're so tough to work with and their parents are worse. But you know what? Think of the impact that we could have, you know, and, and God made me to do this. I can't give this up. What am I going to do? Go, you know, sell stuff, you know, work on commission? No, this is where God placed you for this point in history. And what a blessing that is. Amen to that. You shared such a specific and beautiful story about the pastors who came up to you completely confrontational about how they felt like you're wasting their time. And one of the things that we've seen time and time again from this resilient child establishment messaging is pastors who are having that moment and recognizing the ways that they've fallen short. And that moment might be playing out for a pastor who's listening right now, someone who's not invested in this work with kids. How do they begin, not only if their heart work has been stirred by this conversation, how do they begin to turn that around in the context of their communities and their priorities? Can you speak to that pivot point for folks? Because I would hope that some of the folks who were rude to you in 2004 have uh, gotten the message by now. Yeah, I'm not sure. I hope so. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I guess, you know, for me, it, it's always a matter of, okay, when I realize I'm wrong, I got, I got to rethink everything. So let me go back to, to square one and try to figure out what did God actually call me to do in ministry? What, and, and then try to figure out, okay, well, if that's the calling, how can I be most strategic and intentional about fulfilling that calling? And if I'm now considering the possibility that maybe it means I need to invest a whole lot more energy and resources into children, then I've got to start doing some homework on what does that look like? What does that mean? Who's doing what that mm. seems to make sense? What can I adapt into who I am and my gifts and my context so that I can be as effective as possible? And, you know, that's going to take some time. It's going to take, a lot, I think, a lot of prayer and reflection. Yeah. It's going to take letting some other people in who, who you can trust, who aren't going to beat you up over it, who are going to say, yeah, we've, we've been praying that you would get to that point. <laughs> and, uh, you know, here's some things for you to think about. And we're totally behind you. We want to be part of the process because this is a victory for the kingdom. Right, and right. so we want to do whatever we can to support you on that growth path. And it is a growth path, but it's completely different than what they got in seminary. 
completely different than what they're going to hear at pastors' conferences, completely different than what their elder board is probably expecting. Right. You know, and by the way, that's another point is that sometime uh, a pastor who goes through this transition of recognizing it's not about adults, it's really about children, you're probably going to need a different board. And, and so to start thinking through, yeah, how do I get people who have that perspective, have that mentality? And, and it may even come all the way to the point of reshaping the vision for the ministry of the church. Yeah. And I mean, that's a very pivotal, very fundamental, foundational thing to do. But I would encourage pastors to have the courage to do it. Thank you, George and Matt, for the time and the wisdom. And thank you for listening. Make sure you check out the show notes for relevant links discussed in today's episode, including a full transcript of the episode, which is a new resource that we're going to be offering for all of season three. You can also learn how to leave a voicemail for the show with any questions or comments, and I'd love to hear from you. Lastly, wherever you're listening, there's a way for you to subscribe or follow or favorite this show. And please press whatever that button is for you because it really helps get the word out about what we see as the most important conversation the church can be having today. Conversations like what you just heard, all about resilient child discipleship. The Resilient Disciples podcast is powered by Awana. Awana is a global nonprofit organization dedicated to equipping leaders to reach kids with the gospel and engage them in lifelong discipleship. Awana is fueled by the generous support of individuals, churches, and organizations, as well as resource sales. Subscribe to the podcast today so you never miss an episode and go to resilientdisciples.com for more resources and many more of these conversations. The podcast is mixed, edited, produced, and hosted by me, Ross Cochran. Our theme song is Fresh Air by Christian hip-hop artist Josiah Williams and Hits by Jude. You also heard I'll Let Go, provided by Josiah Williams from his album, Rerouting 2. Thank you for listening. We'll talk again soon.